You've been hearing how some big brands are winning through simplicity. But don't get intimidated. You can do this too, no matter the size of your team or your budget. Want to learn the six behaviors you can instill to create simple experiences for your customers and your team members? Download a free copy of my simple playbook today. It'll help you immediately turn your customer experience around and create an Amazon experience without having an Amazon budget. Grab your copy of my simple playbook at mattliles.com slash simple playbook. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. If you've listened to the Simple Brand Podcast enough, then you know that most of the guests I bring on teach about marketing, leadership, or other business functions, and they'll tell you, here's how I became successful, here's how you do it. And those stories are great, and those stories are really insightful. But rarely will you find someone who's vulnerable enough to say, well, I made some mistakes, do not do what I did. And that's why this week's guest stands out among most of their leadership thought leaders. It's Scott Miller, back again with another of his Mess to Success books, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Scott's the Executive VP of Thought Leadership with Franklin Covey. He's the host of Franklin Covey's On Leadership with Scott Miller podcast. And he's one of the few authors who's on a mission to release leadership books filled with lessons on what not to do including his latest book that releases today, actually, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. It's 30 different challenges he went through and that you need to overcome if you're a marketing leader who wants your team to truly thrive. And I had a lot of fun talking through these challenges with Scott. Let's take a listen. Hi, Scott. How are you doing today? Matt, I am great, man. Thank you for the second platform. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, well, you know, you are part of an exclusive club, the Two-Timers Club. I think that's a compliment. Let's call it a compliment. There's good people in there. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I am honored to be back, man. Thank you again for the spotlight. I appreciate it. And as long as you keep cranking out these messy books, uh, I'll keep having you on the show. Well, then you just committed to nine different interviews because I've got a couple more coming out. (laughs) Nine more? Well, I've got I've got at least seven more that I've committed to to the publisher. Job mess to career success, communication mess to influence success. Both of those come out in twenty twenty two. So I'm I'm into the fifth one writing writing it right now. I can't wait to read them. If they're like management mess to leadership success, marketing mess to brand success, I'm going to enjoy them. You know, I was telling you earlier. I can read your book and I hear your voice as I'm reading. And so that keeps me engaged the whole time. I love it. That sounds horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on how you look at it. This is your second messy book and it takes a different approach in calling out your own mistakes. And that's, that's extremely vulnerable of you. So why did you decide to take this approach? 
Well, so in the second book in the Mess of Success series, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, I actually don't share as many messes of my own than I did in the first book, mainly because I think I had less messes. But that doesn't mean that I didn't hold back. And I certainly shared insights and messes that I had gleaned from watching the industry, watching broader business, you know, marketing professionals make mistakes. So I just continue to believe that when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs, that leaders who teach through their mistakes, through their challenges, through their struggles and messes, they're much more vulnerable. They're much more relatable. They're more authentic than, you know, the untouchable leader who chooses to separate herself or himself from the rest of the group. I just think that people learn more from mistakes than they do from successes. And that's the route that I'm taking. I think they do. And as a marketing leader, if you don't teach your team the mistakes you've made, then your team is doomed to repeat your mistakes. And it's just hypocrisy, right? I mean, what what leader that had the best interest of their brand, of their organization, of their product, of their division, of their customer would allow your people to make the same mistakes that you did? Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't make other mistakes because we know as leaders, Matt, that that's where the growth comes, right? The growth and anybody's skill set and maturity comes from not always succeeding. But if I, if I know there's a pothole seven feet to the left, I'm not going to let you step in it. Now, there might be a different pothole that you should or could or might step in. But, you know, it's kind of sadistic to have you make the same mistakes I've made. I, I'm not about saving people or rescuing people. But I am about making sure that you learn from my mistakes that you can put your time and energy from learning then from your own independent of the ones that I can teach you about. And I think that's really helpful. And I think that's one of the things that really helps your book series stand out. I appreciate the compliment. I I do think that there's a level of authenticity that I'm trying to convey by just, you know, opening the kimono and saying, you know, here are some things that I did well. Here's some things I did poorly. And I hope that people can learn from them. Like I said previously is go make your own mistakes. But if I can prevent you from making these mistakes, then, you know, mission accomplished. There you go. Now, in your last book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, a couple of the lessons you shared came from Dr. Covey. So I'm curious, did Dr. Covey share any marketing lessons with you that's helped you in your career? Well, Matt, as you know, Dr. Covey passed about 10 years ago. Many of the lessons that I learned from him around relationships, around building a brand, around, you know, principles of leadership certainly infuse all that I do as a marketer, communicator, an influencer. So I'd say, you know, first amongst most is this focus on relationships. You know, we hear this phrase, every company is now a technology company. And I I think that's true. Chick-fil-A is a technology company. But I think it's also fair to say that Every company's in the same business. They're in the relationship business. I don't care if you're Oracle, your SAP, or your Disney, or your Warner Brothers, or your Pier One. They're still around. You're in the relationship business. Are you able to relate to? Are you in communion with your customer, your vendor, your community? So much of what Dr. Covey taught me about how to build effective relationships, no doubt, permeates my marketing prowess, if there is such, and in the book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. And that makes a lot of sense. And 
sometimes we'll say that we'll we'll say that we're trying to cultivate relationships with our customers, but a lot of it is really you know lip service, especially you know I I remember my days in marketing, and it seemed like everybody that I interacted with outside of marketing always had a marketing idea for me. I was bombarded with all these internal ideas, but being in marketing, you've got to be an advocate for that customer relationship. So how can marketing leaders do that when they're bombarded with so many ideas? Well, you speak the truth, right? I mean, everybody is a marketer. When's the last time you heard someone give feedback to accounting or finance on their quarter in close process or IT on, you know, which server to select? Never. But everybody's got a marketing idea. So I think there's two big ideas to ground yourself in as a marketer. One is as a marketer, it's your job to what I say in the book, to orbit the giant hairball. What a great book title by that same name. I think it was Gordon McKenzie that wrote Orbiting the Giant Hairball. As a marketer, your job is to focus on the customer. Remember, which challenge one is named, it's the customer stupid. (laughs) As a marketer, it may be your job to represent the client to when everybody else is in the company internally focused, processes, systems, structures, politics, cash flow, it likely is your job to resist that inward gravitational pull and be outwardly focused. What is the voice of the customer? What customer told us that? How do we know that? Are we sure that this was the customer's path and journey to discovering our product? So one, as a marketer, it's your job to be the same voice representing the customer inside of your culture. Second, And I learned this, of course, from the famed marketer, Donald Miller, who, of course, wrote the book, you know, Build a Story Brand. He wrote Marketing is Simple, Marketing Made Simple. He actually endorsed my book. And that is resisting the temptation to have all of your messaging be about you. You know, most people's websites are about their level of R&D, their journey. What was their grandfather's vision? What is their mission? What is their purpose? Nobody cares. No. Nobody cares what your mission is. Nobody cares. What Maybe your their mom is. cares. No one cares. If they can't see themselves in your messaging, if your messaging isn't about solving their problem, the way they call it, the way they term it, the way they fund it, not what you call it, not what acronym your team developed, you've got to make sure that, again, you resist that temptation to speak in your language and that you're instead speaking in their language. That requires you to spend more time managing clients than maybe managing internally your brand or your division. If your messaging does not come across in a way that a client can see themselves in it, they won't read it, and it's all for naught. Like Donald Miller says, when you confuse, you lose. And I see too many instances of businesses using their own jargon, their own complex language. But that jargon, that complex language, I think is ingrained into their team members. And I I think it can be difficult to make sure that you leave that language inside and, you know, maybe use an outside voice for your customer. And and Matt, easier said than done, right? And as a chief marketing officer, I found myself all the time talking about Franklin Covey's, you know, global footprint and how many countries we're in and how many years we've been in business and how many tens of millions 
we've spent on R&D. And those are just things to satisfy our need to exist. I mean, we don't have a right to exist. No business has a right to exist. We've got to make sure that we resist that natural temptation to talk about ourselves and write in a way with the vocabulary that clients use. I mean, often we, we, we might call something leadership development. A client might call it a productivity problem or a strategy execution problem, or we might call it retention and they might call it engagement. So I think it's vital that as marketers, we're constantly checking the language that we use to describe things that our clients need to solve in the same words that they use. And I think it helps to even bring that language back inside the organization too. Because a lot of times, you know, whether you have uh, whether you have new hires or there are newer people coming into the organization, or if you're working with another functional area, we tend to assume that everyone knows our terms and it's not always the case. Well said. It's exactly true. All right. So we've talked about being an advocate for the customer. At the same time, you mentioned that marketing leaders have to be aware of their other customers too. So who are their other customers? Well, of course, you know, every organization is going to be organized a little bit different, right? But this is challenge 16. I call it, never forget you have two buyers. You have your external buyer, but you also have your internal buyer. It might might be finance, it might be operations, it might be sales. It might be a licensee partner or a franchise. And there there are two customers. Those that are ultimately your customer is your client outside the firm, the organization. But Woe is the marketing professional that isn't politically savvy enough to recognize that there are people inside your organization that will become your champions or your detractors. And there are many, you know, above board legitimate ways to message to them, to divide and conquer them, to make sure that you recognize there's a process that's unique to your culture. And you need to be adept at playing to that. I mean, a perfect example, right, is that oftentimes a sales force will become fatigued with your campaign, your language, your creative long before the market will be. And so you've got to make sure that if your sales staff is complaining or lamenting something, is that the same way the marketplace is doing it? Because your internal customer is always going to fatigue, in my experience, faster than your external customer. So just having that maturity, wisdom, nimbleness, the agility to differentiate between your internal buyers and your external buyers, recognizing that you've got to manage lead and accommodate both of them likely differently and at different sequences and times. You mentioned being able to create champions out of these internal buyers. So what are some actions that you can take to be able to uh, turn some of these detractors around and turn them into marketing champions? I think one of the time-honored processes, Matt, is this idea of dividing and conquering. And I, I don't mean conquering like in a literal sense, but there's no worse meeting than you know seven regional managers who own you know, sales channels that marketing comes in, pitches an idea that they've never heard about, and there's a certain level of peacocking that goes on, and they want to, you know, don't tread on me, and they love to crush marketing occasionally. I've been that sales leader who loved to crush marketing. So instead of foisting a new idea, on a division, get them involved early. One of the leadership principles to your earlier questions that Dr. Covey taught was no involvement, no commitment. So that doesn't mean you have to have groupthink or democracy 
on every idea or gain the buy-in from 70 shareholders, right? But if you've got some people who perhaps are notoriously big personalities or, you know, like to see others crash and burn, it happens, right? It's every organization has certain types of leaders. If you can interview them before the meeting, perhaps you say something like, you know, we've got a couple of marketing ideas. I wanted to, you know, ask you if I could pressure test them against your own experience and judgment, get them on their own, individualize these people. And let's just say, for example, that you're in marketing and you've got seven sales managers. You might choose to have seven different calls in a, in a sequence where you pitch it to each one of them and you get their opinions, you get their feedback because now they feel respected. They feel engaged, they feel valued, they feel involved. And you can learn from each one of them how to better pitch your message to the next person. And now you have, in many cases, assuaged their need to grandstand at a, you know, all hands on deck meeting because now they feel respected and involved. And now they've had a chance to share their opinion. You've had a chance to integrate that into your final pitch. I think the reason why most people don't do this is because it's harder. It takes more time. It takes seven Zoom meetings as opposed to one Zoom meeting. But I would never, ever pitch a new idea to seven leaders for the first time in a meeting. I always will have done my work ahead of schedule. I mean, this is how smart CEOs and chairmen manage the board, right? You call each board member individually and you pressure test your idea. And that way you've got a sense for what are their, their issues, what is their pushback, what are their hot buttons. And then when you've brought it together in a group, You've had a chance to address them and they feel like they don't need to sink your idea. Now they have a chance to help you brainstorm. I think there is great wisdom in the divide and conquer strategy. It takes more time. It takes more deliberation, but it allows you to literally never have your ideas feel like an ambush on someone else. And it allows them to kind of, you know, kind of diffuse or release that pressure valve that exists with every leader who has a, a statement to make or feels like maybe marketing might be disconnected from their rather better to have that information disclosed one-on-one in private than to have it blow up and sink your idea in public. Absolutely right. And I think that that speaks to clarifying what your goal is. If your goal is to simply pitch to this audience and just check you know, check that box and saying, well, we pitched. If that's your goal, then yeah, go ahead. Don't worry about dividing and conquering. Just do your pitch and you've you've done your pitch. But if your goal is to have the group buy into it, then it absolutely makes sense to divide and conquer. No, well, to that point, I think there's there's subtle differences in your language, right? I mean, identify your stakeholders and call them up. Hey, Matt, this is Scott. Hey, I, I've been charged with helping you launch this product well, before our team goes off all hacked cock on, you know, 10 creative ideas, I wonder if I could pick your brain on what outcomes would a successful campaign deliver for you? What, what, what is the timeline? What are some things we've done in the past that may have been misses that you need us to be mindful of as we, you know, bring to you some of our campaigns? Or do you have some ideas that you'd like for us to consider? I mean, just even some of those diffusing but genuine statements can better convey your intention. Your intention is to bring them into the tent, not to be the hero, independent of them, but to make sure that your ideas align with what their needs are. I think so much ground can be covered between sales and marketing and for sales and 
innovation or marketing and operations by declaring your intent and allowing people to speak up front on what are some of the things they would like you to know before you go and start designing a campaign. And then when they're in that audience, in that larger uh, yeah. sec- secondary pitch meeting, and they hear that their feedback was addressed in that pitch, I bet they are more bought on than ever. It's so true, right? Or you can even reference them. You know, as I was talking with Matt several weeks ago, his, some of his concerns were this, that, and the other. And he really focused our attention on the needing to make sure that we have a profitable campaign that delivers in Q2. You get the point, right? I mean, it's a totally different environment. Now, Matt feels honored. He feels valued. He feels brought into the tent. And if Matt was an otherwise suspicious or a nefarious person, or he wanted to grandstand at your expense, all that is gone. He will pick a different target to exercise those, you know, personality traits, not marketing. And maybe even help some of the other detractors uh, see the light, so to speak. That's right. Well, for that matter, any successful marketer will have picked off all nine, all eight, all 12. I mean, it is very common for me before I launch a campaign. If there are 12 regional sales directors, I will call every one of them. Not 12 calls. And I'll be in my office. My, my staff will ask me, what were you doing for five hours in your office today? I was calling 12 people having 12 30-minute conversations documenting all of their needs and concerns because I'm going to get in that regional meeting in Albuquerque next month and we're going to crush this. And for me, it's worth taking four hours to do all that prep work to make sure that we don't waste any of our time and that when I fly into that sales meeting and give you know an hour pitch, it's going to be a, a slam dunk versus a crash and burn. I've seen too many marketing leaders crash and burn by foisting what they think is their genius creative campaign, usually created in a vacuum without sales ever involved, involved. And I decided I was never going to fall victim to that group again, because I've been part of that group. I've been part of that sales group that for whatever reason decides they're going to play with marketing that day. And, and marketing is going to, you know, leave the meeting with their tail between their legs. I was never going to have that happen to me. It really helps when you understand what it's like to be on that other side when you've been on that other side. You know, Matt, I think it's what made me a successful marketer. I write in the book, I don't think the reason I was able to double the national tenure of a CMO, it wasn't because I was a genius marketer, although I think I've got some marketing talent. I think it was, to your point, I came from the sales side and I'd spent 15 years deeply understanding the lifeblood, that cash plays in every organization, that you cannot staple brand equity to the back of a bank deposit slip. You can only staple checks, right? Metaphorically. I mean that kind of old school. But at the end of the day, if your marketing does not focus on business development, profitable revenue, new logos, new clients, better retention, then you're just out there building impressions and likes and shares and forwards and Brand equity can become a bit of an umbrella to hide behind. I do think too many marketers hide behind brand and brand equity. And I don't mean, of course, to diminish the value of those at all. Procter & Gamble is all about brand equity. Nordstrom, Barney's are all about brand equity. But at the end of the day, if customers aren't coming into the store and swiping their credit card, brand equity is useless. As a marketer, you have got to stay close to the cash, right? That's challenge three. 
you have got to have a mindset that you are in sales, that you own the quarterly revenue number, you own the outcome of that campaign just as much, if not more, as your counterpart in sales. And because the CEO saw me owning that as much as the sales vice president, I think that's why I was, um, that's why I stayed in the role as long as I did. And I think that's a pretty uncommon mindset to have in marketing. You know, a lot of times marketers will say, you know, they they will focus on the brand equity. They will focus on what marketing literally owns and what is in marketing's lane. So how can a marketing leader take ownership over business development, take ownership over revenue alongside sales? Probably the best question you could ask me. I think the biggest cancer in every organization is gossip. Oh, yeah. And I write about that in my first book, Marketing Master Brand Success. I think one of the other cancers is the ongoing conflict, egos that exist between the leader of sales and the leader of marketing. And again, every organization is aligned differently. In some cases, marketing reports to sales. In some cases, marketing cases, marketing is sales. But to the extent in your organization of sales and marketing are led by different people. It all boils down to the trust that those two leaders have, the respect they have for each other's contribution and craft, responsibility. And in my in my tenure, I was I write about it extensively in the book that to the to the dislike of some members of marketing, I made it very clear that marketing in this company is here to support sales. Even though the EVP of sales and the EVP of marketing that was me, we were peers paid the same, made the same money, served in the same table at the CEO. I, I, by the way, we both had big personalities, right? I, I don't tend to genuflect metaphorically to anybody, but I made it my legacy that under my tenure, marketing is here to support sales because sales pays our salaries. And I think there were some people that saw me diminishing marketing. I said, no, it's just, you know, sales is king, at least in this company. So I think it boils down to the attitudes, the trust, the interpersonal respect that the two visions show for each other. I, I liken it in the story in a book, in the book to the famous, you know, Utah Jazz basketball team. Gosh, I don't know, back in the 90s, I think it was, you know, John Stockton and Carl Malone. Right. And, uh, yes. Call, right. It was Stockton to Malone. Well, I was the John Stockton to sales Malone. My job was to get the ball up to the net. So that Carl Malone could, you know, make the make the, the point. Now I may have that, you know, analogy a little bit wrong, but you get the point. I think the paradigm, the mindset, the belief system of marketing should be our swagger needs to be channeled into driving sales and their success. And I'm very comfortable having, you know, I don't know, I don't call it second fiddle, but I was I was very comfortable having our team have a service mentality two sales. It worked well in my tenure, but it boils down to our, our sales and marketing, those divisions aligned properly and are the leaders developing a culture of trust amongst themselves that permeates their divisions. Because as long as sales and marketing leaders point the finger at each other, so will all of their initiatives, projects, campaigns, budgets, and staff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've seen too many examples where, you know, to kind of tie to that uh, Stockton and Malone analogy, where there's a wall between the two 
and you know, marketing will take the ball and they'll simply just lob it over the wall over to sales and Good just luck. say, okay, it's in their hands now. Right. And then if it doesn't work out, then it's always the other person's fault. There's a lot of finger Matt pointing is, that happens. Matt, Matt, it is every CEO's worst nightmare. I mean, their worst nightmare is probably a board that doesn't work well. But their second worst nightmare is what you just described is, well, sales, we did our job. We launched the website. We launched the, the Twitter feed. We created the packaging. We placed the ads. We sent out, you know, we went to the trade show. We gave sales 800 names, 800 leads. No, you gave them 800 people that you'll never see again who visited your booth for 14 seconds and had a lovely conversation they've long since forgotten about. That's not your job. Your job is to keep those leads warm turn those names into leads, pass them over to sales and help sales nurture and close them. You're exactly right. It's, it all boils down to the trustworthiness people demonstrate in their intention and their practices. And does marketing co-own it to the very end when the client actually signs the deal? That, that is the partnership every company wants is sales and marketing owning it mutually to the very end. And then that helps you both mutually win. It does. And it just sets the standard, right? It sets the standard for we're in this together to the end. Sales doesn't take credit. Marketing doesn't take the blame. If midway through it's not working, the marketing leader walks over to sales and says, okay, this isn't working for you. What should we change? What do you need from us? What mistakes do we make? How can we turn on a dime? It's checking your ego. It's checking your humility. It's... What Dr. Covey said, effective marketers, effective leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. And as long as you're more concerned with what is right than being right, it's going to work out. And that goes back to some of the Dr. Covey lessons that you were alluding to that really some of the biggest lessons focus on relationships. Sure. But one of your lessons in your book talks about a relationship that is super uncommon. And I, I think that there are a number of companies where if somebody tried to do this, they would either get their hand slapped or even maybe get fired. So you talk about being a friend to your competition. Explain that one to me. Yeah. So this is chapter 15, challenge 15, friend your competition. You know, I think gone are the days where your value proposition was trashing your competition, right? Where you built your entire value prop on their weaknesses or you just sold against them. I mean, I couldn't tell you what the value proposition is for most of our clients. I don't care. If their solution is right for you, run with it. But if our solution is right with you, then let's talk. So I just, I've never been one of those sales leaders, salespeople that quite frankly cared much about the competition. I spent all my time perfecting and understanding our expertise and perfecting and understanding what our client needed. And if I generally thought our solution was best for them, I would try to convince them of that. Similarly, as a marketer, I was never a part of this game where we demonize the competition. Are you kidding me? If you have an abundance mentality, which again, back to your original really wise question around Dr. Covey, is the opposite of a scarce mentality. If you have an abundance mentality, there is enough business, there are enough clients, then we're all going to thrive in this together because the more successful our competition is, 
the more successful we will be because they pr- they're proving that there's a need for our broader solutions. There's a, there's a job to be done, right? There is a issue to be funded, to be solved. So I made it my legacy to go out and friend our competition. I share a, a story about how I reached out cold to the vice president of marketing to a competitor of ours, Vital Smarts. They are the very competent people behind the book, Crucial Conversations, extraordinary book. And we went to lunch, kind of awkward in the beginning. I, I declared my intent and she listened. And over the years, we grew to have a really beautiful interpersonal friendship. We never shared trade secrets. We coached each other. She helped us ask some smart questions around how to pick our marketing automation system. She asked me questions around the you know, kind of calls to actions in our email, how we built our databases. Uh, and over time, both of our companies were better off from us judiciously coaching and mentoring each other. And I think it's a great lesson. It doesn't mean to be Pollyanna or to be naive. You know, I don't know that the chief revenue officer from Oracle is out having lunch with the chief revenue officer from SAP. They probably are surreptitiously, right? Because they're probably recruiting each other. But I do think there is an abundance mentality to where you don't have to demonize your competition. In fact, if you want to become a trusted advisor to a client and they come to you with a problem, you might say, can I tell you, I'd love to sell you our solution. In fact, you probably could buy it and be quite pleased with it. But honestly, what I think you've got is a different problem. And I think that our competitor over here has the right solution for that problem. You probably should buy their solution. Now, some of your salespeople are horrified at that. Yeah, you'll lose that sale for your quarter. But you will build the loyalty, the trust, and respect of that client to where when you move companies or when you do offer a solution, they will know that you have their best interest at heart and not your own. And that is a sales and marketing professional that has their own long-term reputation in mind, not just hitting your quarterly goal. It is, it is looking long-term versus short-term. It's having an abundance mindset. It's, it's this idea in the book that I write. Most salespeople and marketers, they know their own revenue goals by heart. The true question is, do you know your client's revenue goals? What's your client's third quarter goal? If you don't know your client's third quarter goal as well as you know your own, you don't care for your client as much as you think you do. Yeah, that's true. And that takes you back to that scarcity mindset, focusing on yourself, calling out your competitor as the enemy, but with an abundance mindset, you're better able to want to care about your client and all of their goals, as well as all of their challenges and struggles. And then recognizing that your competitor isn't the enemy, the real enemy is your client's challenges, your clients' struggles, and you and your competitor are, in a sense, on the same team to help that client. I'd even take it a step further. I think your enemy is your intent. And in essence, you Mm. said this, right? As as a marketer, as a sales leader, heck, as a human being, as a spouse, as a parent, what's your intent? All of us think our intent is always pure. Nonsense. All of us have malintent sometimes. All of us have, you know, a hidden agenda. All of us have a, an, a, an intent that is more self-serving than perhaps we'd like to admit. When you check your intent, 
when you really ask your intent, is my intent to go in here and sell this client a solution that allows me to make my fourth quarter and thus qualify for President's Club in the trip to Maui, now you're being truthful with yourself. Or is your intent to go in and listen to your client, really understand what is their problem, what is their need, and, and I, am I or am I not in a position to offer them a solution that allows me to offer them another solution in Q1 and a renewal in Q2? an expansion in Q3. And when it comes time for the fourth quarter and a new product, will they trust me because this is right for them? If you have your intent clear, the client will feel that. And I think it comes to acknowledging some of the best people still have that intent. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you're a person. Just have the maturity and the self-awareness to recognize when is your intent inward focused and when is it outward focused on making sure that your client is set up for success long-term with or without you? And that speaks again to having your intent, your goal to be serving those people that you're connected with, whether it's your internal buyers, whether it's sales and business development, or whether it's your client, you know, who, who can you serve and how can you ensure that you've got a stronger long-term relationship? Matt, I never would have had this wisdom or maturity back in my 20s, honestly, in 30s, right? I was a classic, very effective salesperson. I sold on charm. I sold on speed, sold on customer service. I didn't always sell on value. And I was obviously very motivated to make my numbers, to launch campaigns that made the goal. And I just think as I matured, as I understood the value of long-term relationships, that my reputation, my brand was merely just the collective nature of all of my decisions in life, that I became more outwardly focused, more abundant, less self-serving, and more client-serving. And I was willing to forego a smaller quick fix sale or solution and became more patient, became more focused on my reputation, became more focused on solving my client's need. I could have sold a lot of things and did sell a lot of things that met a short-term solution for me and for the client. But it's with my, you know, my years of my years of failures, my years of messes that now I realize I probably could have actually been more successful had I been more willing to check my intent and had my customers' needs surpass my own. Well, there's a lot of other marketing leaders that never attained that wisdom and never attained that maturity. So congrats to you for doing it. Well, <laughs> it might have taken me a little longer than I wanted it to. Understood. As we talk about marketing leaders, we got to remember that it's not just about you as the leader. You've got a whole team of people behind you. So what should marketing leaders look for in their team members that they want to hire into the organization? Well, challenge two is, you know, marketing is not just a division, right? So as a marketer, you are understanding that everybody who works for your company is a brand ambassador whether it be on social media, whether it be at the mall on the weekends or what they're doing with their personal life. Increasingly, your people actually represent you in every, in every engagement. But then I might pivot to challenge 17, and that is, I call it, hire people smarter than you. It is, this, it is this concept that as a marketing leader, your job is not to be the smartest person in the room, the most creative, the font of all wisdom or knowledge. Your job is to be a talent magnet to hire and retain, recruit and retain people who are in fact more creative, more talented, more educated, more experienced than you are. 
and be comfortable in that, that you are not trying to be the genius in the room, but rather to quote Liz Wiseman in her book, Multipliers, the genius maker of others. And I think I share in the book a story around how I, as the chief marketing officer, fell into this trap and thought my job was to be the most creative, the font of all the ideas. There used to be a a joke in the marketing department. Best idea wins (laughs) as long as it's Scott's. And it kind of wasn't a joke. It was really a cultural norm. Yeah. And as I began to mature more, I realized, you know what? I have become the sort of fountain, all these spewing out all these creative ideas when my job is not to be that. My job is to be the hose, right? Putting it in the fountain for other people to nurture them. Or perhaps I'm the motor in the fountain, but it's everybody else's ideas that are being able to pollinate. But sometimes I need to step out of the meeting. Sometimes I need to recognize that there are other people that are going to be more creative than I am, more well-read, more experienced. It took some humility, some uncharacteristic humility from me to step away. It's actually why I stepped out of the chief marketing officer role is because I realized I had become a little too controlling, too focused on being the smartest person in the room. And that was just a fallacy. That great marketers are comfortable, confident, and humble enough. In fact, when I left marketing after, gosh, you know, close to a decade leading it, and I came back a year later, I moved over to become the EVP of thought leadership and start writing and podcasting and speaking. I came back to the marketing division, like literally this whole floor of our headquarters, 35 people. And I walked around, and I looked at the, I looked at the, the product launches, the postcards, the posters, the campaigns, the email templates, Matt. It was better to my horror. It was better than the stuff they were producing under my leadership. And my stuff was extraordinary. And I really looked around and I thought, wow, these people, they didn't just survive my departure. They thrived in my departure. Now, I was a great leader. I I, I, I was not a jackass. And a lot of people's careers and incomes doubled under my stewardship. So I have no shame in my tenure. But it was coming back and realizing the quality of the marketing assets that they were producing wasn't just as good. It was better since my departure. And I've thought a lot about that. And I've come to a place of you know, comfort and vulnerability to say, maybe I should have left earlier. And that could be the case, or, or, or it could be a mixture between that. Yeah. A mixture yeah. between that and that they've taken the lessons that you left them with. Could well be. That's right. Yeah, and I, things. I, I appreciate you offering that. I think the big learning there is as a marketer, chief marketing officer, vice president of marketing, marketing manager, your job is not to be the genius. Your job is to be the genius maker. It doesn't mean that you are a martyr or a victim or you always hold back, but you're just a little more deliberate of, are you always dominating the conversation? Are you always having the best idea? Is your idea always the final idea? Are you able to ask good questions of others? Are you able to let go a little bit and leave the meeting for half an hour and say, you know what, guys, ladies, I don't don't want my energy or my belief windows, my perspective to lessen the creativity. I'm going to step out for 45 minutes. I would like for you all really to just think independent of me. I'm going to come back and have a debrief with you. 
that, that takes a confident leader to step out and not have to micromanage the process along the way. When the leader comes back and there are the great ideas and the great plans, they should take pride in that. Man, that's the best, that's the best legacy, right? I know our time is ending here, but yeah. that's the best legacy of a marketing leader is building capability in others. This is the biggest leadership lesson I've learned, Matt, is that effective leaders recognize that their job is to achieve results with and through other people, not for others, not in spite of others, not alone. That great marketing leaders achieve results with and through other people. And when that is your belief system and that is your mindset, you coach, you mentor, you guide, you step away, you step back, you build capability and capacity in others, and you don't try to rush in and save the day. That's a huge lesson right there. Beyond marketing mess to brand success, you're also focusing on coaching people through your Ignite Your Genius platform. What can people get out of that course? Yeah, thanks for the shout out. So if you visit scottjeffreymiller.com, I've developed a series of 14 self-paced video modules and a printed and digital guidebook that allows people to benefit from the uh, success I've had in my own career. I've designed 14 different components that help you clarify your professional values, understand how to become more self-aware, determine if you're a specialist or a generalist, how to develop a multi-decade career timeline. Like I said, it's called Ignite Your Genius. The whole premise is to move away from an accidental career to a deliberate career. And if you visit scottjeffreymiller.com, you can register and subscribe to that offering there. Excellent. Yeah. I've, I've seen uh, the content that's in there. I've, I've seen the, the module overviews and it looks like it's, it's something that's really valuable to help somebody create an intentional career that they can be proud of. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. I enjoyed yeah. the time today. I appreciate you shining your podcast spotlight onto my work. Thank you for your abundance mentality. Oh, yeah. Well, you are absolutely welcome. Thank you for coming back. And I can't wait to see all your other messes. Hey, I'll look forward to an invite for Job Mess to Career Success. It comes out in January of 2022. I'll, I'll, um, I'll beg for an invitation to come back. No need to beg. We, we can go ahead and get it on the calendar. <laughs> thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Right, Scott, thank you. So great seeing you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Scott Miller. So go on and check out Marketing Mess to Brand Success. It's officially out today. And go check out his career coaching course, Ignite Your Genius. You can register for that today at scottjeffreymiller.com slash coaching. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It's going to make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Stephanie Stuckey. Stephanie is the CEO of Stuckey's, the roadside convenience store chain that was once the mainstay of U.S. highways. Stephanie and I discuss her recent initiative in purchasing her family's legacy and a struggling brand to mount a comeback story that's redefining the road trip experience and capturing the hearts of nostalgia-loving fans everywhere. So go ahead and subscribe, and you'll automatically get Stephanie's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. 
Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.